Welcome to the Touching Into Presence podcast. This podcast is for people who are interested in bodywork, empowerment, and somatic-based practices. I am Nikki Olson. I'm Andrew Rosenstock. We are certified rolfers. Collectively, we're trained in various movement and bodywork therapies with an emphasis on somatic awareness and client resilience. Through conversations, our goal is to share and explore mind-body paradigms to offer empowerment possibilities. We're grateful to be in conversation with Ruthie Frazier today. Ruthie is an educator and a guide in the realms of body, psych, and human potential. A structural integration practitioner since 2007, yoga teacher since 2003, voice dialogue facilitator since 2015, a Brown University graduate, lifelong dancer, mother of two boys, and author of the book Stack Your Bones. Ruthie brings decades of experience to spaces of healing, holding, and personal evolution. In today's conversation, we talk about Ruthie's history in both structural integration and yoga. What is voice dialogue work? The interweaving and overlap of yoga and structural integration and how they can work together and be a benefit in both physical as well as metaphysical frameworks. As can be expected when three people passionate about the same thing get talking, this conversation was very easy and exciting. A little note that our talk was recorded during a tropical storm, and some of the background noise is not phone static, but severe winds and rain. And so with that, let's begin our talk. Hey! Howdy. Is that Nikki? Yes, Nikki. Ruthie, it's nice to meet you. So one thing that Nikki and I were chatting about just before is like, uh, we've had a, we've had a few guilders. We've had a lot more, uh, Institute people. So just a little bit of like, how, how did you get into structural integration work? And if it's comfortable, what, what made you go with like, say the guild versus KMI versus the Institute? How did that all sort of unfold? Okay. Yeah. Um, so Let's see. So back in 2006, um, I moved out to Boulder, Colorado on a whim. I was just having a personal adventure and I had Richard Freeman in my mind, the amazing yoga teacher. And I wanted to be in the mountains and I wanted to get away from New York City. And I so I bought a one way ticket to Boulder and just thought this is just an adventure. I was 24 and I started practicing yoga at um, Richard's studio. Before I moved, I was teaching yoga full-time in New York City. And I thought, I'll move to Boulder and eventually I'll start teaching yoga out there. But I was in Richard's class and I made a new friend, this woman, Kimberly Johnson. And she is this fiery, redhead, amazing yogini woman. And she was a gilder. And so she just noticed that I was new in town. We became friends. She invited me to go for a hike. Um, You know, I have a dance background and I went to Brown University and same with Kimberly. We both studied yoga at um, with Cindy Lee in New York City and taught or I taught at Om Yoga and Kimberly was involved there as well. So I had all this in common with her and she was a gilder. And one day she said, come to my office. I'm going to give you a structural integration session. And I had never heard of it. 
Um, I struggled with some lower back issues and hyperflexibility being a dancer my whole life. And I think she noticed the way I was walking on the, on a hike one day and I was hyper lordotic and I knew that, and I was just really unstable, um, in my pelvis, my lumbars. And she said, I'm giving you a session. And so we went to her office and she gave me the session and I, it was amazing. And I felt really stable I, and I really struck me how stable and organized I felt. And then she explained to me about structural integration, talked to me about it. And, and then we continued with the series. And I remember after the second session, she put my flip-flops in her trash can, I guess, because of the way that they were worn out. And I walked home from the session barefoot on the concrete with her hands on my pelvis, grounding me the whole way home. And um, I just had a really magical experience with her. It just opened up this world for me coming from dance and yoga. And, and then as we went through the series, she said to me, Ruthie, I think you should be a rolfer. I mean, back then, conversationally, we would still say rolfing and rolfer, even though it was guild. She's like, you should be a rolfer. And I was like, wow. Yeah. Like I could maybe, maybe that's a good idea. And then I, applied to the guild. They had a new class starting. And I basically chose the guild because Kimberly went to the guild and she suggested it. And she just really loved um, the vibe there and the approach. And um, I'm actually glad I went to the guilds. I think it was a good match for me. And then years later, when I studied with Emmett, that was confirmed because I, I felt so connected to him. And I'm so glad I got to meet him before he passed. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you got to meet Emma too. I I didn't, but I've heard just everyone that speaks about about him and Peter speak just really wonderful. Yeah, he he has a real he had, you know, and it lives on. So has a really special, beautiful, creative, practical, mystical, human approach to the work and it really, really spoke to me to be with him. And that was, I was already a practitioner for seven years when I went to um, do an advanced kind of, I think it was a four-handed course with him in Hawaii. And so you, you were already teaching yoga at that, by the time you you had done it. You've been teaching yoga for a long time before, it sounds like. That's right. I found a really amazing yoga teacher while I was in college and I studied religiously with him. His name is Tom Gillette. He's a phenomenon. And I, he had a local studio in Providence, you know, so I was a student at Brown and I was studying art history and dance. And then I would study yoga. And then during my senior year of college, I actually attended his yoga teacher training. This is back in 2002, you know, before everyone and their mother did teacher training. <laughs> I actually was really resistant to it. I thought, I don't want to be a teacher. This is just something I love to do. And he said, no, no, you're doing it. And he gave me a scholarship and then said he would hire me and I would work it off later. So then I had like this mandatory job. I had to work there afterwards. And um, he threw me in the fire. Like he went on a vacation and made me teach all his classes. And I, I feel like I was kind of forced into teaching yoga. Um, and Tom, my mentor, he just, it was just like, a given to him that I would do that in a way. And so I started teaching when I was 20 years old. And the summer after I graduated college, I had all these brown professors in my yoga classes. I stayed in Providence and was teaching there. Um, and it just 
became a part of my life by accident in a way. It's not something I pursued, in other words. It, it grabbed me. And I, well, I, think, I think that's, from what I hear, that's a common thing in the SI world and in yoga somewhat, but so many SI people that we've spoken to, either on the show or elsewise, have been like, yeah, I didn't really, you know, like like you said, they went to see someone who it was like, you have to be a rolfer, a guild, or whatever you want to call it. And they're like, oh, I don't know. And then they do the training and it just transforms them. Yeah. Yeah. So I did Tom's teacher training and went on to study many forms of yoga. I, I, that's a whole topic in itself, but I've been teaching a long time. And now one of the things I do is I, I really hang out in the overlap between structural integration and yoga. And I've been experimenting in that very fertile place for many years now. Can you speak to, to that a little bit more? Because I, from what I've seen with you on Facebook, and I took your movement webinar through the Guild, and I, was, I unfortunately only could sit through half of it. My kid was not giving me <laughs> the space to enjoy the whole thing. But, um, yeah, I would love to learn more from you of how you're bridging movement into structural integration. Sure. So... The way that I remember really consciously, deliberately combining them is thinking about clients who would come in for structural integration and tell me that they, they would tell me that they practiced yoga. And so I would say, do some yoga for me. And I would watch them because I, I wanted to see what are they practicing you know, and so someone would come in with, say, really strong, you could call them adaptive or maladaptive patterns, like really like, you know, like a lot of their weight is in the outer edges of their feet or like a very posterior pelvis or a really strong kyphosis or really interesting bracing. So I'd be looking at their body patterning and then I would watch them do a couple of yoga asanas in those patterns. So I would think, okay, this person is doing the poses in all of those patterns. Is this helping? You know, is, are these asanas helping this person heal something or transform something for the better? Or are they just perpetuating poor patterns or poor habits or, or suboptimal patterns or suboptimal habits? And what I came to realize is that the asanas now now i'm not even necessarily yet addressing the philosophical stuff but what i realized is that the asanas could be a way to create more balance in the structure and create more healthy movement but they don't necessarily do that so they the asanas themselves could be a medicine or a poison and it just depends on how that person is practicing them. So say someone has really strongly supinated feet, that person could practice Tadasana with the physiology and the intentions to get grounded in the corners of the feet that don't usually ground, or they could just supin their, supinate their feet in Tadasana. And um, so I started to realize the asanas could be a tool when used, what I think, 
would be in a better way. But then again, it depends on what, what the, what the goal and the intention is for that person. Are they trying, you know, there's many, many reasons to practice yoga, but, um, so I became interested in yoga towards the same goals as structural integration, helping the body have a better relationship to gravity, helping create more natural movement mechanics, help the knee be a knee instead of moving in some wonky way that doesn't resemble a knee. And I also found that it's not really choosing the right poses as much as it is doing the posture in such a way that it will address the imbalances and correct them. Um, sometimes choosing the right asana will lend itself really well to say, solve a particular problem. Um, so I started to call it yoga for structural balance. It was basically asana with structural integration principles in mind. And I started to realize over time that that ran really deep, not just let's use Tadasana to get out of this heavy supination in the feet, but it also ran deeper than that as well. And I found that the overlap is, has a lot of dimensions to it. That's all really lovely to hear. And it's something uh, I know I relate to very well. And, and I, I don't want to speak for Nick but I'm sure there's a lot of overlap as well there. So one thing for us being from the Institute is we have Rolf movement that gets sort of dropped into our programming, but at the Guild, you don't, do you have, what, what is like the movement curriculum or what, what, when you went through your program, how was, how is movement brought into it? Or did you kind of have to figure that out all yourself? Yeah. So, um, when I was at the Guild, there was very, very minimal movement curriculum there. There were a few gems that we learned that were, we were told came from Ida Rolf's experimentation, but there was very little. Um, when I studied at the Guild, the movement warm-up we did was Tai Chi because the teacher, one of the teachers there, Jeff Lin, was a Tai Chi practitioner. I found that to be lovely. I would say that over the years, I've studied other movement forms. You know, I have a strong dance background. I've studied ballet, modern, flamenco, African dance, and learned many different kinds of warm-ups over the years from different interesting movers. I studied continuum movement for a few years in New York City with an amazing teacher, an exquisite teacher named Mary Abrams. Um, I've dabbled in Feldenkrais and Alexander work. And... And I've also really specialized in taking the yoga curriculum and reducing it to gentle, simple essentials so that it's accessible to everyone. And so from all of that, I have really created the structural integration movement curriculum that I do on my own. And it's, it's not just yoga asanas, although that's a big part of it. I, I feel that I've... I've, I, I have a tendency to want to essentialize and reduce things to their simplest form. And so think of it like ABCs or like instead of a song singing, doing scales. And so I'm really into these elemental movements that I feel like actually when you do that with many different disciplines, they all come down to similar movements 
pelvic rocking, you know, weight shifting on your feet, like very simple things that are universal to many, many movement traditions. And so the movement work that I'm doing, the creative process I've gone through, it's honestly been in a lot of ways a solitude process. That's not to say I haven't had help and mentors and learnings from other traditions, plenty of that. I've, I've, I've pulled from all of my studies, but it's not like I went anywhere and someone said to me, this is good stuff to do in terms of structural integration movement that I synthesized that and worked with it and played with it. And I also will bring in philosophical things that I love that I think are part of structural integration, part of yoga and so over time, you know, I've, I've started to realize and I'm still realizing that I think what I have is a, is a real method in the works, which is certainly, I wouldn't doubt it's compatible with, say, what you're learning in Rolf movement, but it, it can't be the same because I never learned that. Oh, I can relate to a lot of what you're saying. I mean, it sounds like whether the Rolf Institute or the Guild were been handed down the message, the principles from Ida Rolf. And what's great about it is it can be applied to so many different movement modalities in the sense that, yes, the Rolf Institute, and maybe it sounds like we have a little bit more curriculum lined up. It's still, I mean, there's great nuggets in it, but it's still kind of left to, it's more, um, I would say, theory and, again, Rolf movement principles and not such a prescribed movement pattern. And um, so, yeah, I, for myself, I, I don't come from a dance background, but I've been a student of various movement modalities. And so I've borrowed ideas from yoga, Pilates, gyrotonic, gyrokinesis, and also I lived in New York City for about eight years, so all the fun mover people that would come through and do workshops. I'm like, that sounds fun. And yeah, when I've done my movement sessions, people find that they can relate it to what they're learning in the Rolf Institute, but then they're like, wow, this is so different and tangible and, and interesting. And again, I didn't learn it all in one place, but we're able to grab and a big pursuit of a lot of my further movement journeys have been in the, in the name of structural integration, just because I, it's kind of what I think when you go through the training, it's hard to not have that lens and not include it in what you're doing, especially if you're working with clients and, you know, the movement for me, I, what I've seen in my practice is the movement really anchors the structural work that you do with the hands. And it's like, I know some practitioners aren't as movement, influence but i just for me i just it's just just makes the job so much easier yes yes it makes it so much easier and it also empowers the client to have more things they can practice on their own and you know sometimes i think why should i be doing all of this for this person (laughs) this person can f can can in a in a healthy way exert themselves in the right direction in the right way not over exertion for exhaustion but healthy, you know, sometimes vigorous exertion in the right direction. You know, although a lot of the movement work I do is, is all about 
profound relaxation of the body. That's a huge part of it. But some of it is work as well to play with changing habits and patterns. And yes, it, I really feel the movement work does anchor the manual work. It's an it's a amazing marriage combination. Um, and you know, while you were talking about the principles of SI, I was thinking about how one of the gifts of SI, I think, is that SI has an actual language for defining and describing healthy human movement, which, which I would call fitness in a way. I mean, you know, the fitness industry, how would they define what's fit? Because as SI people, we could go to a gym and look at the fittest person in the gym who has a six pack and strong muscles and everyone would say they're the strongest and maybe they have great cardiovascular health, who knows? But from a structural integration point of view, we may not view that that person as having a really resilient structure, even if the fitness industry might say, oh, they're so strong, they're perfectly fit. We Like we do have particular parameters and principles for what is fit. You know, we like core sleeve balance, flexor extensor balance. You know, we talk about stability and mobility and relationship to gravity and movement coordination across joints, you know, the kinetic chain. And, and so I think this is really special. And so if there's exercise or a conscious movement practice that has those principles in mind as a foundation or as a goal, that's unique. That's special. You know, the, when I talk to people who go to the gym, I think, why are you strengthening that? What, what, what is the guidepost here? And I think in, in weight training and in athletics, there are those, but, but none of them are quite SI. And so, the, but they could be married with SI. So I do think SI carries a gift for fitness, for exercise. Um, not the, and, and also not that, not that all the movement work I do is particularly for exercise either. There's other reasons to engage in movement work. You know, for me personally, my practice is more about releasing tension and coming back to a baseline and kind of shedding layers of stress, which is not the same as exercise, but can overlap with it. So you actually wrote a book about this too, more or less stack your bones, right? Right. And stack your bones is a, as far as I understand it, is a is sort of a way of, of you teaching people how to do stuff for themselves, more or less, like you were saying before. Yes, exactly. Um, I had no interest in writing an anatomy book or a book that has paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs about like muscle mechanics or something that I really wanted to create something for experience for personal somatic experience. You know, a, a client doesn't have to know where all the attachments are to have a fruitful somatic experience. And so my book focuses on experiential learning and it just came from me giving clients homework exercises, really simple homework exercises to do. And I would invent them on the spot. Like what would be good for this person right now? And I would just make it up, you know, and it was a playful thing. And sometimes it was a great idea. And sometimes maybe it wasn't, but I would play with it. And then what I found was I would have a client come in and I'd be like, wow, the homework I just gave to person X would be great for this person in front of me now. And then I would so I would teach it to them as well. And then I would say, that's a good one. I'm going to write that down. I think a lot of people would benefit from that one, you know, because we do see these archetypal patterns of issues, right? 
both in personality and in body structure, which are potentially one and the same. So I started to prescribe these homework exercises and then see that some of them are pretty universal. And like, wow, I can't really help this person, you know, engage in pelvic rocking if we haven't yet really come into constructive rest and how to feel the support of the table under the feet. You know, how can we rock our pelvis if we haven't found our feet? And so I started to find this kind of sequence in learning um, these elemental movements. And then I started to write them down and write them down. And then suddenly I was looking at like notebook full of these exercises. And I, and I thought this is a collection of work and these are seemingly simple and in a way they're simple, but in a way it is like the ABCs. It is like playing scales. So whatever music you want to like make with your body, you need to play scales in tune. So it's a, it's, it's a book of exercises that are about experiential learning and fine tuning both awareness and healthy movement patterning, healthy coordination in the body. Um, and luckily I had a chance encounter with, um, the head of a publishing company who loved the idea and he just gave me the book deal. Again, I, I never quite had to pursue it. Um, but it kind of came to me and I had a lot of the work already completed when I got the book deal. It's pretty awesome. Congrats. I mean, it, it, it's, um, it, it seems like a great book. It's been, it's gotten great buzz around the SI world from, from what I've heard which is pretty great. And you should be super proud of yourself. Thank you. That's super sweet. Um, when I, uh, the timing was interesting because I got the book deal when my older son was three months old. And so when we decided there would be some drawings, um, the, I believe it was, I think maybe I already had made some drawings, but I wondered if they would get an illustrator to do them. But the, the publishing house asked me to continue developing my drawings, and I actually created all those drawings while breastfeeding. <laughs> and um, literally, baby on my breast. <laughs> and, and yeah, it really came together really well. And um, I still find myself prescribing those simple movements from the book. I've expanded on it a lot now. Like if that was 100 simple exercises, now I feel like I have a thousand or more. Um, but it's still the foundation of what I could say is my method or my way of um, doing SI movement. So I'm curious of the expansion of this, and I don't know if this is, if I'm dropping a, a potential secret, but I saw something on a post, someone commenting on your work and where could they get more, and you had suggested that you're building a, a YouTube library with movement? Yeah. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I am. I'm, um, I'm creating a lot of content right now. And so I expect that in a few months, maybe I'll be able to release a lot of it, but I'm creating a bunch of paid content and a bunch of free content. So I am creating a few different online courses um, that I'm really excited about. One is a course for yoga teachers, and it's how to bring SI principles into yoga teaching. That one, I think, 
is probably some of my best work. Um, so that should be interesting to, to complete that and put that out into the world. Um, and then I have a course I'm really excited about called Gravity Support and Rest. And it's basically my personal structural integration approach to restorative yoga, supported poses and learning about the body's relationship with gravity, the person's relationship with effort and being willing to be supported um, and other themes. And, and then there's a couple of others, different ways in to, to different aspects of the curriculum that I have, which has many, many different facets to it, actually. Uh, some of, is very structural, some is more improvisational and playful. Um, and then I'm, I'm realizing that I need to put a lot of free content out there because of the times we live in. And I've come up with this concept called Nourishing Nine. It's basically nine minutes of nourishing movement. And so I'm creating um, a whole bunch of nine-minute movement breaks. And each one will have like a theme, like something to drop into, and they'll be very gentle and hopefully smart and thought-provoking and also feel really good. Um, and so, yeah, nourishing movement. And again, some of those will be more structural in theme. Some will be more playful and undulating but um, I'm hoping to get a lot of those out into the world. And so I'm going to generate this content and put it out in the world and then see what happens. I feel like you are my, my spirit sister from, from afar. I mean, most of what you just said is like, I'm like, oh, yeah, that sounds familiar. I've been, I've been creating some courses. I'm right now editing a, a posture course, but from sort of an SI perspective of what good posture is. And, and it's a huge, it's like a, a bunch of exercises that are coming through, but kind of blending yoga and or, or modern asana and yes i work together but having to do freebies so that people get a bit of this and um and i, I created a series before that i called desk breaks which sounds kind of similar as well but different than the uh so like as you're speaking it's just it rings just really true but i also think that's because like the three of us are all yogis and si people and i think at some point we have similar lenses of of looking through uh, through the world and through the work. So I'm really excited for you and excited to see what comes out of it. It sounds exciting stuff. And I think what I think is kind of cool with the, the silver lining for in this pandemic with a lot of us body workers who are nature of the work is to really be in close contact, which is kind of contraindicated right now that I feel with a lot of SI practice, practitioners, movement people, there's going to, what's going to come out of this is a lot of people are going to be birthing out these amazing movement gifts and offerings. And I think that's, I think that's super cool because it, of the worldwide web of everything possible to be on the YouTube, there's, we're still small niche and like I am in the fitness world, um, tons of fitness stuff, tons and I'm always looking for that that one practitioner trainer that has that little bit of that somatic edge of it's just not about set reps. And, you know, functional fitness is key. I think functional fitness is kind of falling into a little bit of that somatic awareness realm of the fitness world. But, um, yeah, I'm kind of on the same page of putting stuff out there and creating something 
And as I know, a ton of people are just because it's, a, if you're not working, what else, how are you able to stay in connection and relationship with the work? And I feel like people are starting to find ways to, to put it on a, a wider platform. I don't know how, how the, the, the conversation is with the Guild, but I know with the Rolf Institute, it's still frustrating that we're still kind of a relatively unknown practice. That's true. And it's too bad because the structural integration wisdom is so learnable and so practical and so applicable. Um, Even functional fitness, I think, would be bumped up a level if it had SI sensibility brought in. And there's no reason why it couldn't. And you could say maybe SI would be bumped up if it had functional fitness brought in. But... um, but but it's true we are we are not well known and i think it's a public relations issue above all um and it's not that's not beyond me trying to figure out how to monetize my skills so i can make a living and also have fulfillment that i'm doing my best work in the world Beyond that, I'm not sure I, I want to be the person to solve the SIPR problem, but I hope someone else gets on it. I think we all feel the same way. <laughs> uh, in fact, I, I almost put a post up today just about that. The Institute did a bunch of talks, uh, and they had one of them was with Peter Schwind, who was a rolfer. And one of the things he was sort of talking about was like rolfing post pandemic. And I like it. there was a sense of me that was like, what is going to happen? You know, um, and I almost put this huge rant out and I realized it's, it's not for me. I mean, I think Nikki and I are doing a lot, not to boost our own horns, but just by creating these talks is, is doing something for it. And we're happy to be doing that, but we, we can't take, we can't take everything over. So we'll see what comes. And as long as we have people like you who are sort of bridging that and helping other people understand sort of what is SI because a lot of what when I'm hearing you speak again it rings so true to me and I I have trouble sometimes like explain to people the difference in a way between yoga and SI because to me they're so interchangeable uh, especially when you have the SI lens and you can kind of look over from a structural standpoint and like you said we don't need to go into necessarily the philosophy but in the institute there was a teacher named Jeff Maitland well, I don't know if you've read any of his books, but he brings in a lot of the phenomenology of, of uh, interrolfing, which is very similar. It's more from a Zen Buddhist background, but he also brings in Western uh, phenomenology, and it ties so into that aspect of essentially. I mean, for me, what yoga is and SI work is is what is it? What is it to be a human being? What is it to be a human being on this planet? Uh, and we can use these postures as ways to become more embodied and more alive within ourselves, or aware within ourselves. Or we can just do yoga and have none of that. You know, we can just do yoga because it makes us feel good. And that's, and that's a fine place to be. You know, you and I and Nikki might know there's more to that. But if our clients aren't there yet and they just want to do fitness, that's fine. But we can also like bring more into that, that fitness is more enhanced for them or more efficient in them. And then they're not using just the, the tonic muscles. They're getting more of those, those basic ones or, as Ida would call it, the intrinsic, um, you know, and how, so how do you access those to have more efficient movement and, and therefore live more efficiently, right? Be more efficient and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, you're totally speaking my language. Um, I think all three of us are probably kindred spirits, but um, 
You know, when I think about the yoga SI overlap, um, one of the first things that comes to my mind is both are a subtractive process. So from the yoga perspective, the whole practice is a kind of unveiling. You know, the yogis asked, who am I? And the answer is not this, not that, not this, not that. And so there's this layer shedding aspect that under that I am not my identity. I am not who I think I am. I am not my body. I'm not even my thoughts. I'm not even the witness to my thoughts. It's even deeper than that. And so there's this kind of shedding of layers to make a conscious present moment recognition and realization and acknowledgement of the deepest layer, which maybe the yogis would call Atman or, or the soul or something eternal. But, but it's about subtracting. It's not about trying to acquire holiness. It's shedding all of the misunderstandings. Um, and in SI, you know, it's, it's interesting because I really see SI as a rewilding process that you know, we're, we're actually, um, there's an underlying integrity. There's an underlying blueprint of health that we're tethered to. And so we get patterns of disorder and stress and trauma and strain and the body's reactivity to life and it accumulates. And then we need healing to, metabolize and discharge some of those experiences so that we can still have that underlying integrity shining through. And that's not to say that we don't also evolve. Like, like that adds another layer when we say, well, that underlying integrity, that underlying blueprint also evolves as we adapt. And that's true too. But the, that SI is this sort of, there's order under the disorder. Everything a person needs is already in them. Their tissue is wired to be those tissues. Their organs are wired to be those organs. The, um, the physiology and the um, kinesthetics are wired to be well. And that's already in the person. And so, so it's subtractive. And so I really see that as a parallel with the practices. Um, and then, you know, Layered on top of that, I also really think about the map, the yogic map of the prana body, um, the nadis, like the, the energy channels in the body. And I feel like um, in yoga practice, we want to get out any kinks in the hoses, you know? <laughs> so we want the, the hoses to be free. So there's this free energy energy flow. And I feel like when we are in better relationship to gravity, that's what happens. The, the hoses be, uh, full of prana or energy or chi or whatever you want to call it become unkinked and it's back to normal. Um, see, there is a divergence though, because I'm really interested in SI and in yoga as a way to come back to a healthy, natural, normal baseline um, of thriving and availability to life and to live life fully, as you were saying. I do think in the yoga tradition, there is a thread or a trajectory of a kind of, a certain kind of transcendence 
and leaving that behind in a way. Now, these are, these are generalizations, um, but sort of the image of the yogi with sort of like eyes rolling back in another dimension, like astral plane stuff, I find that fascinating. I'm personally interested in that, but I don't know if that's what we're getting at in SI, except for the fact that if we're organized and our feet are on the ground and we're available and we're not so burdened with all those layers of reactivity from the past that we can actually be present and have a future that's unburdened by those somatic projections, then maybe will be more open to archetypal, transcendent, transpersonal experiences. You know, it's not necessarily anti-SI. Um, but that's what I would say is sort of my general thinking of the overlap. Yeah, I'd say that that transcendent comes a little bit, a little bit more in the, the Vedic aspect and the, the Samkhya and, and somewhat a little bit in Advaita Vedanta. Uh, and, and if you had different forms of the Kaula Tantra, it would, it would not be as much reductionism and not be as much, and it would be more about it, more or less those practices that the, the tantric practices were householder practices. So it was less about how do you transcend and more about how do you, how do you exist within this? While there still would be a sense of transcending as part of it, it was still, it was, it was their non-dual practices. And I think those really tie in beautiful to SI because can, they were also the first practices to be embodied. To, of which uh, uh, you'd use uh, different, uh, what's called niyasa, or, or you'd use the chakras, uh, and the chakras not at all what what we think of now, but you'd use chakras as as, as energy points in the body for meditation, uh, as a way of, of becoming more aware of your body uh, from an elemental perspective, among other stuff. But those practices start to, how I understand it, uh, really go well with SI because it's not just about like you said, transcendence, which is what a lot of the other stuff can be, and which in our modern world, so, so much of that transcendence be, can be a spiritual bypassing, which becomes less about a, um, you can just hear the coffee clearly kicked in right about now, um, becomes less about being within within yourself and more of this sort of, you know, you're looking towards this goal, but you haven't actually done the work. Whereas within the SI, it's all about, I mean, you whether you're, we'll take a 10 series as an example. I mean, 10 series gives you the path to, we'll say, liberation. Of course, it's not necessarily really liberation, but it's like you can't really skip that. You have to kind of do the work and do the journey in order to, to get to that place, which is both a, a liberation of sorts, but also bringing you right back to now and being fully present in this body, in this place. Um, but I, I do feel you. I just want to sort of tie that in to, to give more of that context. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> Those clarifications. Yeah, you know, when you were talking, it made me think about another parallel goal of SI and yoga is now, now I don't want to speak too much to how this historically and philosophically ties in with the yogis. You could probably do that much better than me. But at least in modern yoga, what it's become for us humans alive right now, in SI and yoga, there's, there is this theme of personal empowerment and self-sovereignty and human potential. And part of that, I think, comes with coming out of unconscious habit, so breaking kind of autopilot. And I think 
there's a real opportunity in yoga to come out of autopilot. So when I teach yoga, I focus on this a lot. It's like, oh, are you coming into this pose the way you always do? Notice how you always do that. And notice why. Why are you doing it that way? Can, can we actually break ourselves of all that autopilot so we have real agency? And I think that so fluidly matches the SI stuff of kind of looking at our habits and, 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 and real, thinking of, intellectually thinking about why am I doing that, but also somatically feeling what the habit is. And then once you see it, you're that much closer to breaking free from it, having more choices. Um, so that also is, I think, a really fluid uh, commonality. Totally. And I, I'm just laughing because I remember when I first got into yoga, it was purely physical. And when teachers would have me do that to be like, you know, how are you feeling? Why, why are you doing that? Do you notice a difference? I hated that at first. And now that's like all I do, which is always, I think is, is so important, but it's also funny because a lot of times when I work with people, they don't want to go there because they're exactly where I was at that point. I was like, no, I just want to do the poses. I don't, I don't want to be aware of my unawareness yet. I want to break my patterns yet. I can't do that if I'm not aware of being unaware and, and all that. Yeah. yeah. One, of, one of my lines is, a, I don't teach group classes now, and I, I haven't in a while, but when I did, one of my things I would say is, I'm not here to make you happy. I'm here to teach. Because <laughs> some people don't necessarily like that, <laughs> but I think it's good for them and, us, and me and everyone anyway. We could totally vibe a lot more on yoga and uh, SI work, which is great. Um, but with Mindful of Time, we had a few other things we could vibe on. Um, I don't know. There's one in particular of the other areas we, we sort of chatted about that is drawing your attention more that you do want to share because you do have some pretty awesome. Well, is that wind coming in from outside, yeah. by the way? Yeah. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah. I'm going to close the window. Give me a second, okay? Yeah. I would love to learn more about the voice dialogue. It seems like the way you could come at things with your work is really wanting to take advantage of the synergistic applications of these modalities. So where does voice dialogue play its role? Yeah, yeah. So this is a method, a practice, a tool that is so phenomenal and so awesome. And, you know, I was working with the structural integration and the yoga so much. And then this other modality just f made its way into my life about eight years ago. And I became a practitioner of the work. I have a mentor I work with very closely. And um, so, I, so I'd love to tell you about it. And, and then just to give a little context, I've recently also started somatic experiencing school. And I, I've been really excited about this constellation of my career that's forming with yoga and structural integration and voice dialogue and somatic experiencing. I'm, I, when I think about these methods and like you said, the synergy of them, I, I start to feel like I'm on the right track in my life. And sometimes I've had doubts about that. Like, why did I choose this weird career path and um, what am I doing with my life and and somehow I've trusted throughout and 
it's coming together. And the voice dialogue is a big part of it. So, so basically, voice dialogue is a method for exploring the many different selves we have in the psyche. Um, so the idea is that a healthy psyche or a healthy personality has many, many units, many selves. A healthy one does. Almost like a multifaceted jewel. So the jewel is like the psyche, and then the different sides on the jewel are all different selves. And so we have, you know child selves and critical selves and politically correct selves and unpolitically correct selves. Um, we have accommodators, we have selfish selves. Um, we have, you know, adventurers, we have wounded parts. We, ha we have so many different selves and some of them are archetypal in nature. Like we all have an inner wounded child of some kind. <laughs> um, and some are very personal and, and um, specific to our circumstances growing up. So, so the idea is that in the house that we grew up in, certain behaviors were um, encouraged and reinforced and some were not. And so because of the house we grew up in, that affected our conditioning and that really affects, affected our personality. And so we highly identify with some of ourselves and we really disidentify with others of ourselves. Whether we identify with them or not, they're there. So, so the parts of ourselves that really run our life and this, I, I tell you, this is who I am and this is, the way I, this is the way I behave in the world. Those are like my primary selves, we call them. While the parts of me that I'm unaware of or the parts of me that are hidden, that I want to keep hidden, those are like my disowned selves. And um, so voice dialogue is this um, beautiful... Um, well, what I should say also is that we believe there's something called a person's essential blueprint, which is basically like the content you come into the world with. So it's, it's the parts of you that would be like you no matter who raised you. Like there's some part, like it's like your constitution and, or the poetry of who you are, what you came in with. That's there too. And depending on the house you grew up in, that may or may not have been, um, you know, encouraged or valued. So voice dialogue is this beautiful tool for exploring these many selves. And in an actual session, you actually go into one of those selves and speak from that part of yourself. And when you go into that self, you are embodied by that self. You, you, you become that self and you speak that point of view. And then in a, in a session, you might go into another self that maybe has a contradictory view of the other one. And then the most important part of the voice dialogue process is a cultivation of what we call the aware ego process, which is a loaded psychological term, but it really just means a center aware place. It's like the place in my mind where I'm aware of all my selves at work and I can sit in the center and hold, oh, there's this self that, that feels one way and there's this self that feels another way about the same thing. And I can sit in the center and honor both of those. And so all selves have value, even socially unacceptable selves that are told they're bad also have value. All selves have value. All selves have wisdom. All selves have a gift and a superpower. And so it's really about becoming more whole and not saying, oh yeah, this is who I am. I am polite. I'm, I'm, I identify as this and this and this and this, and I'm nothing else. We all actually have everything. 
So the reason why that I came into this work is because I found myself in a workshop, a group workshop, because this work is done normally one-on-one, but sometimes it, it can be done in a group. It's called a group facilitation. And I met my ment- my then she wasn't my mentor, now she is, but I met this woman, Bridget Dangle Gaspard, a genius woman. And I went to this workshop with her. And um, she basically gave us a brief overview and then she had everyone go into a responsible self. Some part of you that's responsible, whatever that means to you. And everyone went into a responsible part of themselves and she was asking everyone questions. And so when I'm in my responsible self, I speak from the eye. So I'll say, I make sure that Ruthie's kids stay alive. I make sure they eat broccoli for dinner. I make sure they go to bed on time. I make sure that Ruthie gets her schedule right. I make, so that's how a self talks is from the eye about say Ruthie. So we were, everyone was in a responsible self and speaking from that part. And what we, what we do in voice dialogue is by going into a self, we create a little bit of healthy separation, like healthy differentiation, so that I can not over-identify or under-identify with that self. So if, I, if I'm over-identified with my responsible self, I'll never give myself a chance to be lazy or to rest, or, right? So it's like just enough separation so that I'm not stuck in that self all the time. So that one of the gifts of voice dialogue is that healthy separation. But anyway, we were in the workshop, everyone went into the responsible self, and then a little, and then we went back into the center place and everyone reflected on wow, that's my responsible self. Okay. Yeah. I'm in that self a lot or, or I'm not depending on the person. Then she had everyone go into a, what she called a free spirit self or whatever that meant to everyone. You know, it could be a vacation mode self or, you know, a different self. And what I noticed was everybody's posture changed dramatically, drastically, no elbow in the butt needed no tracking. It was like, ask someone to access a different part of who they are and their posture, their holding patterns, they're changed completely. Just because people literally had the space to go into a different part of who they are. And so I noticed, you know, in watching this is like, some people will have like a, a strong, like hyper extension pattern and And I'll sort of work with that person and see that is linked to their lawyer self. And, you know, if we do some of this voice dialogue work and then they go into a different part of themselves, their magical child or just a different self, they come out of that posture on their own without any physical manipulation. It's accessing a different part of who they are. And so these bells were ringing for me like this is one of the missing links. Um, And the session process is really, really fun. And it it really has to do with people's belief systems. Like, I'll give you one more example and then I'll stop talking. Um, Like, I'm thinking of one person who came in for structural integration and he stood and I was my first time looking at his body and he was standing with this really wide stance, really braced, knees bent, like looked like was about to play football type of stance. And I said, oh, is that how you usually stand? And he said, yeah, it's normal. And I was just noticing that. And then I remember asking him, you know, just as an experiment, just to like shake it up. Can I see you stand with your feet a little closer together? And he's like, oh, no, 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 I can't do that. 
And I'm like, well, why not? And he's like, well, if I stand like that, someone could knock me over. And I realized, wow, he, he has a self that has a belief that he has to brace to not get knocked over. And that's what neutral is for him. And, and so anyway, we went into sort of processing the self that has that belief. And that self has that belief for a really good reason. But if we don't address the belief system, how's he ever going to stand differently? That self was in charge. Let me tell you, that self had a high status in the psyche right? So these are the things, I don't know if this is ringing true as you hear it, thinking of your clients, but, um, but anyway, it's this magical fun process and um, it's helped me a lot. And now I facilitate people. And again, you don't have to be a therapist to do it. It's a, it's a very simple tool with a very specific structure. All I do is hold space for the self to arrive and share. And as a facilitator, I just get curious. Oh, tell me about yourself. Where did you learn that? Like, how long have you been in Andrew's life? Oh, tell me about what you did for Nikki when she was five. Were you successful then or, or, did, or did you get put away in the closet, right? So, so as a facilitator, you just ask questions and then people from that self share who they are. By the way, I love living in my closet. <laughs> I had a great fort in my closet. <laughs> I also loved, I loved when my first, my first closet hiding in there for years, I would hide in there. I would actually hide in the dirty clothes hands. Uh, I don't know what that says about me, but I'm with you. Um, wow. That sounds so cool. That is definitely, I can see why you would want to bring that into your work. Cause it is, I mean, so much of what we're doing in some way or another, whether it gets through voice dialogue or through tissue or promoting promoting new movement patterns. It is kind of to shake up how we're always in our life. And there's so many different selves that we can embrace because we know when we stick to one thing, we lose adaptability and adaptability is necessary to have function. Exactly. We want to thank you so much for taking time with us and so fun to learn so much more about you than your great Facebook posts. But yeah. we do want to keep we, we want to keep seeing those Facebook posts as well. Ivy, are you referring to my Facebook rants? Because sometimes I rant. Or do I they think, just? Well, the Facebook, the the upcoming ones for sure, the ones that okay. you mentioned. But the only ones that I've seen are the Facebook rants. A lot of what you've shared about your what is it, Milesisms? Is that your son's oh, name? Oh, Milesisms. My son. My son's um, yeah. brilliant questions and comments on the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I always like them because I, mean, I, I just I read them and I think, wow, he's already like way more intelligent than our president. So that's pretty awesome. Absolutely. Without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. He really, really blows my mind. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I'm sure you would agree, Nikki, like being a mommy is so, so enhancing to the work. It's like it's so interesting when I hear of working mothers who feel that almost like motherhood's in the way of career progress, because I understand there's time limits, but I just feel like they, I learn, I don't know. I'm, I'm better at what I do because of, because of raising little people. I mean, like Andrew was saying, mostly the SI work is about, the human experience and dropping into awareness of the, that human experience and not the only way, but one way of really learning about that is to watch little people grow up, right. And take care of them. So 
but yeah, thanks so much for having me and letting me share about my thoughts and what I'm doing in the world. Um, I appreciate the opportunity and I appreciate you guys taking the time um, and effort to put this together. I do think it is what the world needs um, to, to learn about SI and just to get this type of perspective. Hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks so much, ciao. Andrew. Ciao. Yeah. Ciao, ciao. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to us at Touching Into Presence. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. You can find out more about Ruthie at stackyourbones.com. Please feel free to leave us positive reviews on your favorite podcast aggregators. And please share us with people who may be of interest. We're doing this for all of you out there. We do hope we're making a difference in your worlds. We look forward to hearing back from you and seeing you on our next conversation at a Touching Into Presence. Bye-bye.